This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Andrew Waldridge, or Woolly, as he's better known. Woolly spent the last 24 years helping to improve soil health across New South Wales. And while he's a salinity technical specialist by day, he also owns and runs a farm with his wife Margie at Canoundra. In this episode, Woolly shares with us the importance of reading our landscape, understanding how to manage the water balance on farm and some of the key early indicators that help us to identify if salt is an issue in our farming system. Woolley also discusses what actions producers can take to better prevent and manage salt-affected areas. Local Land Services Natural Resource Management Officer Jasmine Wells caught up with Woolley out in the field on one of his recent visits to a new salt outbreak site. So, Willie, you've spent the last 24 years of your life helping to improve soil health in our region. Can you explain what your role as a salinity technical specialist actually involves? Okay. So, at the moment, I work for Department of Planning, Investment and Environment, DPIE, New South Wales. And I'm part of a team of people who try and inform decisions about salinity, particularly in our rivers. And that involves working with Lots of farmers, lots of land care groups, lots of community groups, and lots of catchment groups. And so how does that relate to your own farm as well? How do you apply that expertise on your own farm? Margie and I bought this farm 18 years ago, and one of the first things we learnt was that our whole farm used to be the holding paddocks for a much larger sheep station, which meant that our soils are quite degraded on this farm. And so we've been putting into place lots of land management actions, particularly in a grazing enterprise and in a cereal farming enterprise, which have been aimed at trying to restore soil health and predominantly by increasing soil organic activity, being soil biology and also in the organic matter that's in our soils. So leading on from that, can you explain how salinity has become such a big issue for agriculture in Australia? How did it start and how is it that we are making it worse as a result of our agriculture? So salinity is a symptom of how the water balance is behaving on a farm. So if we have a landscape where most of the rainfall is being utilised by plants, then we will have low energy runoff leaving that landscape and we'll have very little water going through to the groundwater. When we change that by establishing vegetation that doesn't use as much water over a year, over two years, over five years, over a decade, what will happen is that the water balance will change. That will mean more water will go through to the water table and start moving around in the landscape. When water moves around our Australian landscapes, it comes in contact with salt, which has been present there for quite a long time. And then that salt becomes mobile and becomes concentrated at other parts of the landscape. So salinity is a symptom that we've got too much water moving around our farms, particularly underground. Salinity tells you that you've got too much water. Salinity tells you that whatever land use system 
you have running, you are missing the opportunity that rainfall gives you. It means that you're not effectively using rain at all times that it's present. And from a public servant's point of view, I've worked for various government agencies where we've been really interested in the salinity outcome of that. We've also been very interested in the erosion outcome of that. So if we're sitting in a landscape and we look at two of the major land degradation issues we're dealing with being soil erosion and soil salinity, both are caused by the way we manage water and by us not managing water in a way which turns it into plants. So it all relates back to effective plant water use. It does, yeah. And we have to think about we're sitting here today in the middle of a La Nina event. On this farm, we have had 205 mils of rain in November. Three years ago, we had 205 mils of rain in 12 months. So the variability in the Australian climate and in the Australian landscape makes it tricky, but we have to be conscious that we have to think about farming systems which utilise the available rain and are flexible enough to cope with both times when we have lots of rainfall and times when we don't have much. And so as we're sitting here, we actually can hear the thunder. thunder and lightning outside, which is probably coming through to our listeners. But in a time like this, is there a way to effectively do that? Yeah. Well, if we think about what would be the worst possible thing to do during a La Nina event, it would be to have most of your landscape not growing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We've been getting lots of rain in this part of the world since about May and some paddocks are green and chest high as we speak right now, and they are doing their very best to use all available moisture that's there. But there are many other paddocks where regardless of the rain we've had, they're starting to not use much water. And how we manage that over the next six months is going to be very important from both a recharge outcome, so a salinity outcome, and also from a erosion outcome. What's the one thing that you'd say would be best to try and manage that? Landscapes that don't have much salinity erosion tend to have lots of perennial plant systems. Mm -hmm. So they tend to have plant systems which can utilise available moisture at multiple times in the year. They tend to have lots of ground cover and they also tend to have the ability to respond to big rainfall events. This farm survived the drought quite well, maintaining ground cover. We didn't do a lot of production at the time. We managed our stocking numbers to have much less impact on the landscape. But that meant that as soon as it did started raining, we had a landscape that was ready to go, that was able to use moisture. So that's a bit about the species you have present when they want to grow, when the moisture is available, but it's also about how you manage those species. So if paddocks are in an actively growing phase, we can manipulate that by the way we open and close gates with sheep and cattle. They have much more opportunity to use available moisture than if they're either flogged to the ground or been let go rank. So you and some of your colleagues have spent years doing hydrogeological mapping across New South Wales. What is that and how has it helped us to understand water and salinity better? We've done a technique that's called hydrogeological landscape mapping or HGLs for short. And what that's trying to do is to put in the hand of the managers and the generalists who work in natural resource management and agriculture, the ability to understand some of the complexity that occurs when we start talking about how water can move around in three dimensions in the landscape. One of the tricky things about working in salinity is that there's not one salinity process. Jasmine and I have been to different saline sites, sometimes quite close together, where the processes that cause them can be quite different. So we need to work out a way where we can show people what are the dominant salinity processes in any given area, which then allows you to start thinking about what is the types of actions you might take to fix it, 
and what priority you would do those actions in. And all those things can be variable. So hydrogeological landscape mapping is about trying to provide a management guide which takes into context all of the complexity of salinity and Australian landscapes and geology and soils, and so we can get the right actions in the right place. And so you mentioned the dominant salinity processes. What would a few of those be? Okay, sometimes we have processes which could occur over maybe one to two kilometres where we have water entering the soil profile and only travelling down to a depth of 40 to 60 centimetres and then moving down slope. Then that water causes salt to concentrate close to the surface at the bottom of the slope and we have a nice simple break of slope salinity site. Sometimes we have sites where it's driven by the types of geology that's under the ground. Rocks have different ability to transport water or to block the paths of water, and sometimes they can have a big influence on where salinity occurs and therefore where you might put the management actions. So we can have geological-based processes, we can have soil-based processes, and we can have ones where we can put physical barriers into the landscape, like roads and railways. Is prevention possible or are we just talking management now? Prevention is very possible. There's plenty of places where salinity is not occurring. Preventing is about thinking as a water farmer, how do I use the water that's available to me in my landscape? And if someone like me turns up and can show you processes that are causing salinity or even erosion, again, they're just symptoms that we haven't used all the available water and that we've allowed this precious resource to become a problem because it's either run off the surface too fast or because it's got in to the soil profile and mobilised salts which are present in the landscape. So things that are preventative are usually about how much of a landscape is covered by perennial complex grasslands or vegetation systems, which have a lot of diversity of water use and a lot of diversity of species. And the opposite is also true. So if we have landscapes where we have lots of annual plants and we're maybe only using one or two species, then that becomes a higher hazard because those plant systems have a limited ability to use water over much of the year. And as we've seen in the last couple of years in central western New South Wales, rainfall can occur at any time. Sometimes we have not enough, sometimes we have too much. But having a plant system that has the ability to use water before it becomes groundwater, before it becomes the process that mobilises salt, is our best preventative measure. And so with those preventative measures, is there times when you can do the wrong thing? Like you think you're doing the right thing, but you're doing that in the wrong place. Yeah. You recharge areas, that type of thing. Yeah, you can. That's that's very common. And there's a lot of really well-meaning salinity work that's been done in the previous 30, 40 years in the central west of New South Wales, where the effect has been pretty minimal on the salinity outcome because people have put actions in place where they're trying to make a big difference to the salinity outcome by doing a pretty dramatic change to their landscape in a small percentage of their landscape. So they might plant some trees on top of a rocky hill. They might plant a row of trees halfway down a hill to try and intercept groundwater. But if we don't understand the plumbing, if we don't understand what sort of hydrogeological landscape we're in, it's very easy to put those actions in the wrong place. The farms that I've been to where they've addressed the problem, turned it around, made it disappear. What they tend to exhibit is more a subtle change over most of the landscape, which might mean changing to a more perennial-based farming system, perennial plant-based farming system, or it might mean changing the way they manage the perennials that are already there. It might mean that they try and work out ways they can make their annual cropping systems behave like perennial systems. 
in the sense that they spend a lot of time thinking about how much moisture is available in the soil and what plants the best one to plant at that particular time to use that available moisture. From my perspective, it sounds like if you're a dedicated grazier, you could more easily fix this problem. For those guys out there who are dedicated croppers and that's Mm. what they love and that's what they're good at, how can they go about doing something about preventing or... Hydrogeological landscapes allow you to do is that with a bit of help, you can work out the parts of your farm which may be the most susceptible to salinity occurring and also the ones which are the biggest causes. And so a risk management approach would look at how much of a time over how much of an area of your farm is under the perennial part of your cropping system. So we're talking about making perennial phases part of cropping systems as a really good way of balancing the water that's flowing around on farms. The other thing that people are looking at doing is using annuals in new and innovative ways to soak up extra moisture and to provide other benefits, including economic benefits. So for example, that might mean in a year like this, headers are getting bogged, There'll still be a fair bit of moisture in lots of soils in January. There are opportunities to sow something that looks very similar to what you were going to sow much earlier to try and utilise that moisture. As a winter crop, there are also opportunities to plant a mixture of species to utilise extra water and maybe provide stock feed or green manure outcomes. So it's about just thinking how you're going to farm the water that's available on your farm. And that will change as Australia changes. Speaking of changes, throughout your time in the industry and farming yourself, what have the changes from standard cropping through to no-till, what have you seen throughout your time? The changes have been huge. I remember being 15 years old and being paid to drive tractors in this district because it was very common to till the ground four or five times before sowing. And, you know, in the 90s, we just started hearing about chemical use at a sort of a farm scale in this part of the world as, as a weed control option. So we've seen some big changes and a lot of them, particularly around erosion issues, have resulted in much better outcomes because we've been able to not cultivate the ground as much and certainly not leave as much of the landscape as bare as used to be left. But I suppose the other thing I'd, I'd remember is that professionally, we would go to field days to see these incredibly new innovative machines that, that would cultivate and plant at the same time and came from exotic places like Germany and Canada. And now, you know, there, there are factories building those machines, companies building those machines about every 80 kilometres or so through the cropping belt of central West New South Wales. It's become a very mainstream, very approachable at whatever scale of farming you're doing that you can use that sort of technology. From a salinity perspective, what we've seen is that lots of farmers have totally solved the structural degradation issues that were occurring in their surface soils in their 0 to 15 centimetres by going to no-till, by being careful about stubble retention and being careful with their rotations, which means that lots of paddocks that used to run water off the top now hardly ever do. But that water's going somewhere. And unless we're able to use that infiltration within the systems we've got, then it potentially can cause other problems like salinity. So we haven't got the system sorted yet, but we've certainly got a system that results in much better soil erosion than occurred in the 70s, 80s and 90s. But certainly the work that myself and my colleagues are doing now, where we get new phone calls from farmers we've never heard from before, a really common theme is that we go to paddocks and and it's salt affected and we have a conversation with them which says, has anything changed recently? And they say, yeah, we've gone to a more continuous cropping annual winter system, which means that there is a big potential that water isn't used in the paddocks and the water goes somewhere, comes out, causes salinity. 
So that's been a real, I suppose, eye-opener that through the drought that we had and as we've headed into these wetter times, that we're getting calls from people we've never heard of from before to go to salinity spots we didn't know existed before. We've looked on old aerial photos and old satellite imagery and we can see that saline outbreaks weren't present and then continuous cropping has been implemented in those areas and the salt sites appear. So it it makes sense, you know, if we go to a totally annual system, if we don't use all the available moisture in that system, then it's got to go somewhere. So despite the advances in agriculture, it still comes back to ground cover is yeah, king. Yeah, and it still comes back to how do we have the right land use in which pits of the landscape. So if we have a part of the landscape that is susceptible to high water table and salinity, perhaps that's an area where we have to really think about long term that it's got to be mainly a perennial system to buffer out seasonal impacts of higher rainfall conditions. And you know, we're lucky in many of our soils in central west New South Wales that we can grow this plant called lucerne and we've got 100 years of experience of growing it. So having a lucerne phase within our cropping systems in specific parts of our farms can be a really good salinity management action, particularly if you take the time to understand which parts of your farm would be best to have the lucerne in maybe all the time, maybe for longer parts of the rotation. And which parts of your farm can you run more a cropping-focused rotation with a small amount of perennial? That can really turn a farm around from having a salinity problem to having a farm that is taking advantage of that excess moisture and turning it into production. And because we're talking landscape scale, Mm -hmm. for those guys who do have a salinity issue on their farm, but it's actually moving in from elsewhere... What would your suggestions be there? Like, what can they do to try and manage that? You know, they're they're trying to do all the right things, you know, their minimum no-till, but their neighbours still full-till and it's affecting people around them. Salinity is is an environmental issue like many others where the symptom and the effect are not always instant. A lot of the time, the cause and the effect of salinity are separated by distance and by time. And in Many parts of the central west of New South Wales, they're commonly separated by property ownership. The rain occurs everywhere. Rain becomes recharged into the groundwater at certain parts of a physical catchment and comes out in other parts of the physical catchment. There might be a property boundary between. So what we do in those situations is, is again, all based on our understanding of the plumbing. Is it looking at a hydrogeological landscape approach? What are the opportunities and the constraints in that landscape to intercept water, to make use of it? before it becomes a salinity problem. We also have a long history in Australia of turning salinity areas into quite productive saltland agriculture. A long history of doing that with certain types of species, usually in a grazing system, can be quite productive in the long term because there's extra water there. We just have to work out a way we can deal with the salt that's there as well. So a combination of careful management of salt land and understanding what the groundwater processes are, what the salinity processes that are, and being able to target where we can implement to put more perennial things in the landscape can be uh, very useful. For those guys that are just starting to see a few little symptoms, but they're not recognising it as a salinity issue yet, what is it they should be keeping an eye out for? What are those first early indicators? Yeah. The classic one is if you've got sheep, where do sheep lick the ground? They go looking for salt just like we do in their diets. So seeing sheep concentrating on certain areas is, is can be one of the first symptoms. Just plain, if you're getting bogged at times you don't expect in places you don't expect, that's a pretty obvious symptom that you've got a groundwater system that's not behaving the way you thought it would. 
There are also different species of grasses that tend to come into Ceylon areas as indicators, and they vary as you drive around. So we're sitting in Canoundra, we'd be looking for things like sea barley grass and polypogon grasses and spike rush plants, where as soon as we get past Forbes, we look for more the sand spuries and, and different species. But you can find pictures of those on the on the internet as a salt indicator plants. That's a really good way to do it. In cropping systems, yield mapping has been very useful, particularly if you've got a contractor or your own gear who's got continual flow monitoring and you can see which parts of the paddock are actually doing it for you. So the stuff you're not visibly seeing yourself, but the machine's exactly, picking the machine's it up. Exactly, the machine's picking it up. And what you might find pretty early on in the process where symptoms are just appearing is that in drier years, a certain corner of the paddock might respond positively. It might be the best corner because it's a bit wetter but then as soon as we have perhaps a, a normal, whatever that is, or a, a higher rainfall pattern, then we see a drop off there because the plants start experiencing waterlogging and finally salt toxicity. So having a look at those sorts of things in combination is a good, good way to do it. Trees, there's, there's lots of things killing trees in our rural landscapes. They can be a symptom of, you know, dead trees can be a symptom of salinity, but you'd be wanting to look for two or three more to sort of build up the picture, two or three more symptoms, not just relying on dead trees. And so in your experience, what can happen if a producer is starting to see some of those minor indicators of salinity and they don't start to address the issue? So the earlier we see it, the easier it is to fix. Salinity is a concentration game usually, which means that the more time that the groundwater is close to the surface or at the surface, that's the more chance for the water to be evaporated and the salt to stay behind. So the more time that that happens, the more salt gets concentrated in the soil. If we see the symptoms early as just occasional dampness, we can get plants into that system that have a much lower salt tolerance and a much better ability to use water. So if we act early, we can usually have many more options, much more flexibility in what we try and do. If we leave it to get to the point where the salts become very concentrated, particularly in the upper parts of the soil. We're in sort of a rehabilitation game where we're trying to change the chemical makeup of the soil over a longer period of time to allow it to be suitable for plants that we can make some money out of. So it's much better to be in the prevention game than in the rehabilitation game. And what does that look like, that worst case scenario? You know, For example, yeah. where you've gone out 20 odd years ago or someone yeah. before you and has said, hey, here's what I recommend, and that person hasn't done that, or the property's been on sold and that next person hasn't implemented those changes, what are you seeing today in the landscape? Where- okay, so worst case scenarios can be soils pretty close to where we're sitting. There are soils where if we take a soil sample today, it'll be three to 10 times as salty as the ocean in the soil, which means you have a very limited number of plants that can grow there and you get bare ground, you get the salt visible and then you also get the dampness, the wet that's occurring can make the site untrafficable. The infrastructure, the, the logistics gets really tricky if the site is waterlogged a lot because of groundwater. So what we see is slowly expanding areas that look like that, that have not much growing or only really salt tolerant species growing. And they don't sort of grow at an even pace. They tend to grow at times when it's wet, particularly if we have wetter winters, they tend to grow. So when the salt's diluted more? Well, when, when there's more water around and plants aren't able to use it as much. So that's a classic thing. If you have a long, cold, wet winter, we can let lots of water through. By the same token, if we're on some of those farms we talked about before and they're using a cropping system where they actually don't want anything growing in the summer and we get 200 mils of rain in November, 
then there's a fair chance that a lot of that water's got to go into the ground. It's not going to be used by anything. So marrying up the symptoms to what's actually driving it's important. And so for those guys that are getting only salt-tolerant species or not even the salt-tolerant species, even they're struggling, what can possibly be done? Yeah, okay. So our higher-end rehabilitation techniques involve us saying, well, what can we put in place here that stops the ecosystem from declining or even improves the ecosystem but maybe doesn't have a lot of agricultural production? So we start looking at particularly salt-tolerant species, and a lot of them are natives, and we look at tree, shrub, and grass species that can go into those areas, mainly just to use a bit of water and stop the site from eroding. Around the edges of the site, where perhaps conditions aren't as extreme, we might be able to do some soil testing or various other techniques and work out an area where there's a lot of water available, but it's not quite as salty yet. So we can put in systems there where the plants look much more like mainstream agricultural plants, particularly pasture plants. Again, lucerne can be very useful in those situations to use a lot of water in that particular zone. We'd go to a farm and say, okay, there's a bit over there where we're just in the rehabilitation mindset or the rehabilitation phase. We're just trying to get something growing to use a bit of that high water table and cope with the saline conditions. And then there's another zone of your farm which perhaps is under threat, but it's also very important to manage with regards to where the salt is now. And that's about using as much of the moisture we can with perennial-based agriculture. What's one of the best scenarios you've seen? And it like it sounds like it's a long process yeah. to get to that point. So best case scenarios is that we've seen lots and lots of situations where in the 80s and 90s, salt land was rapidly expanding from farmers not seeing it to farmers seeing it over significant parts of their farm. They've put in practices, changes on their farms and have stopped that spread in its tracks. In some cases, they've even reversed that spread. In some cases, particularly in areas where sort of higher up in the catchment, it's pretty hard to see where the salt used to be. I suppose we have a spread of outcomes based on the severity of the problem and the plumbing and the hydrogeological landscape that we're sitting in. All of those farmers that we like to take groups to go and see or individuals to go and see, they come from totally different backgrounds as you know, everyone is different. They have different enterprise mixes and all that sort of stuff, but they all exhibit some sort of understanding that they're farming water, that you know there's water in the ground sometimes and I have to work out a way to farm it. They've changed from thinking that the only limit to what I do is not enough water. They start thinking about how do I manage water over a season, over a year, over a decade? How is my farm going to respond to different water situations? And so they're obviously, they're seeing an environmental benefit, but production-wise, talking financially, Mm. they're obviously getting more out of their farm. Yeah, yeah. Well, they certainly, yeah, they're still there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We certainly deal with some farmers where it's hard to put a benchmark because everyone's financial situations are different and financial aspirations are different. That's why I've asked the question. I mean, it's it's easy to say you could shift from a full cropping to grazing, Mm. but, you know, that involves money. Seed's expensive. It's hard to come by if you're talking particularly Australian perennials that are also palatable. And then- if you're talking about moving from a full till to a no till, huge expense at changing machinery there. So it all comes back to the dollar mm, at the end of the day, really. Yeah. And some of the ways I assess, I'm keen to know about the successes farmers have. I am conscious that asking any individual about their financial circumstances is, you know, that we have to have pretty trusting relationship to do that. 
So the things I observe in some of the successful farmers who have treated salinity and other things, you know, there's salinity is only one of the many things we juggle as farmers in the central West New South Wales. I see farmers who make really good decisions at stressful times or, or times that cause a lot of stress to many other farmers that tend to cause them as much obvious stress. So all of those things, are, you know, are benchmarks in my head that people are happy with the outcome that they're doing. It's very hard to do, a, you know, some sort of gross margin analysis on something as complicated as a mixed farm. I agree. And how do you put a dollar figure on a better lifestyle as a result of better farming practices? Yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you put a dollar figure on – I was with my daughter on Saturday morning at first game of cricket for the weekend, you know, and for me that couple of hours at cricket on Saturday morning was worth a lot. (laughs) It was worth a lot of money. I I just look for does the landscape look better? Do people seem pretty clear – and not too stressed about the decisions they're making, and do they exhibit things like being able to, you know, to simply take holidays and retire debt? Those, to me, seem to be pretty good benchmarks for how some of these systems work. And I have to say that seems to be a common theme when I'm talking to people like yourselves. When I ask the question along the lines of how successful has what you've done been, regardless of what that is, it's consistently that lifestyle has improved as a result of it. it. You know, like we do talk a little bit about production, but it comes back to what they value in life and how much time they have available to yeah. spend on those things. Yeah. So. And it's also, I have, I have lots of friends who are in other businesses that aren't agricultural at all. And the ability of, of the decision maker in a business to think with clarity and to think in timeframes that are more than just immediate has a very big bearing on whether that business will be successful in the long time term. So we're not just saying that, oh, you've got to de-stress your life because it feels better. Your business will work better if it's not being run by someone who's stressed. And that's really common in, in my experience across many, many types of businesses. So if you're in a business situation where you feel constantly understressed and you're constantly making crisis decisions, then it's very rare that you're going to be able to make a really good two to three to five year decision because you just haven't got that ability to make those strategic decisions. And then that flows through to all sorts of other things about taking the opportunities that might present themselves. If you're too busy running your farm, you may not see opportunities or they may not come your way. Or see those indicators that you need to keep an eye out for. Exactly. Exactly. So having the time to be away from your business to recharge yourself and also having the time to be able to see your business in its entirety, not just how important the next job is, seems to me, as someone who's dealt with several hundred farmers over 20 years, to be pretty important in the long-term success of their farming business. And so before we finish up, what would be the first step? If someone's seeing a couple of indicators or even not sure whether they're indicators, they just want to have a chat to someone about salinity, what would be their first step? Talking to people who know that paddock for a long time is a really good way. Even members of the same family will see different things in the same paddock. So just having a conversation about, did we ever get bogged there before? Do we see a corner of the paddock that never grows anything or that sort of stuff can be just be a good way to catalogue the local history or the local knowledge of that paddock. And if the paddock's changed hands, ask the old, the former owner, the former managers of that, because salinity is a long-term geological process. So getting a bit of context can be very important. Confirming your observations with some simple soil testing is quite easy. And there's all sorts of information about soil testing on the web. And then if you're looking for ideas about addressing a problem, then working with local experts can be a good help or working with farmers who have done something similar. Across New South Wales, 
the knowledge about salinity sits in different places. You know, sometimes it's an LLS person like yourself. Sometimes it's a land care staff person. Sometimes it's a land care committee member. Sometimes it's a person sitting in an agency like mine, which doesn't even have soil or salinity in the title. So I think the best port of call is to talk to your local land care or local LLS people who can put you in touch with the right information and get you the right background. And there's usually some of us that have quite a passion for soils, myself included, and you. Yep. The other big opportunity for some people in New South Wales is is if you get on the web and type in eSpade, you can get access to a government database which shows soil and salinity information across the whole of New South Wales. Hydrogeological landscape mapping is one layer of that information and is available for big parts of the Central West, but not for all of New South Wales. But if you happen to be inside those areas, you can get a lot of information very quickly about what sorts of processes might be occurring on your farm and what sort of solutions would be recommended. Excellent. I think we'll leave it at that. Thanks so much for your time today, Willie. Alex Jasmine. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. Hold up. 